Thank you to those of you who lead children's church as all the kids hurry off there. That was a beautiful song. It's going to be hard to follow that. I'm not near as pretty and my voice isn't near as sweet as that either. That's okay. Move this back a little bit. Well, my friends, this morning, as I was going through God's word, uh, my heart was drawn to the 10th chapter of John. And I want to take you there just for a second or two before we open this morning's sermon. Why John chapter 10? Well, because this. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do when, uh, when so many people are hurting. I don't know what to do sometimes. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do when I see people posting things online that are divisive and hurtful, and yet people being so encouraged. And I don't know what to do. And I don't know what to do when, when people are venting their frustration and their anger and how to respond to that as a, as a follower of Jesus. And I'm raising my kids, and my kids are watching. <laughs> and the reality hits you that how you respond to these things is important. The example you set for your kids is important. What do I do? Do I teach them to fight for freedom? Do I teach them to pray for their government? Do I teach them to be kind and caring and compassionate? Do I teach them to be bold and courageous? What do I teach them? And then uh, I stand up here, and I remember that I'm also kind of a, one of the spiritual dads to 200 people. It's, I don't know. So this morning as I read John 10, it said this. It said, truly, Jesus, Jesus' words, I tell you, Pharisees, that anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in another way is a thief, and that person's a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he's brought them out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and the sheep follow because they know his voice. They'll never follow a stranger. In fact, they'll run from a stranger because they don't recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus talked about the ability for us to hear his voice and recognize it. So I'm praying, Jesus, let me hear your voice. If you're my shepherd and if you're going to walk ahead of me, if I'm going to listen, help me to hear. How would you respond? How did you love people? What did that look like? I just want to pray this morning. Hmm. Kind of just bearing some of the weight that's on my own heart. And if this weight and if this tension rests on your heart too, feel free to join in in this prayer. And then we'll open up God's word to the sermon this morning. Father in heaven, be our shepherd. Help us to hear your voice. Help us to not listen to the voices that are trying to lead us down paths that don't belong to you. Draw us back into your scripture and, in, and into the truth, the words that you spoke to us. 
teach us what it looks like in this time and in this generation to love you and to love other people ahead of ourselves. Teach us what that looks like. Teach us, Lord Jesus, what it looks like to support other people, to support the orphan and the widow, to love the least of these. Show us what that looks like. Show us what it looks like to be humble, to be servants of all like you. Show us what it looks like, Lord Jesus, to be bold and courageous like your Holy Spirit gives us power to be. Help us to speak the truth in love like you did. Give us hearts, Lord, that are soft, that are compassionate and gracious to those who are hurting more than us. Thank you, Father, for those that you've entrusted at this time to lead us and be an authority over us. I pray that they would come to know you. I pray that they would come to know you personally, that their hearts would be transformed by experiencing true life, by experiencing you. I pray that one day I would meet those leaders in heaven and we would talk about our king together, the one that we love the most. I pray that you would change their hearts and their minds, not to be conformed to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed, to be more like you. Help us, Jesus, to quiet ourselves, to listen to the direction of your Holy Spirit, the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of truth. And then give us comfort and give us peace when we don't know what to do, when we don't know what to say. These are hard days to live through. Help us not to walk ahead of our shepherd, but to follow our shepherd wherever you go. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for the grace that you give us as, as fathers and as moms and dads and as leaders. Thank you for the grace that you give us. Thank you, Jesus, for our church family. Help us to be a positive and powerful light and witness to this community, even through these dark days, through these COVID days, through these days of separation. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for your holy scripture. Amen. Amen. My friends, this morning, John chapter 8, the second half, is our home. And I want to thank you for your patience to go through John with some of us at the church who are preaching it. It's beautiful, and yet John, being written by a single author, and much of this story taking place in succession, means that a lot of these stories are part of the same conversation. So some of the things you heard last week probably matched up with chapter 7 and chapter 6, and it feels like you're hearing some of this on repeat. This morning, though, we conclude the festival of tabernacles. This morning, as we start at verse 31 of John 8, we're going to read through to the end of the chapter. Slowly, piece by piece, trying to understand what God would teach us from this scripture and what it means to apply to our lives. And we trust the Holy Spirit be instrumental in that. Because I am just learning what all of this means. And I hope that he's teaching you as you read it too. Verse 31 of John chapter 8. To the Jews who had believed in Jesus, he said this. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth. The truth will set you free. They answered him, we're Abraham's descendants 
We've never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we'll be set free? Jesus replied very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. If the son sets you free, you'll be free, free indeed. I know, I know that you're Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I'm telling you what I've seen in the Father's presence. You are doing what you've heard from your father. Now, the context of these verses is Jesus stands in this festival and teaches the people. There's a line between the people who believe and the people that follow. Jesus is drawing that. And I don't want you to miss that because I think I've missed it before reading the story. Verse 31, to the people who had believed. What does verse 30 say? People are starting to believe in Jesus as he reveals himself. He's revealed himself as the source of life, the spirit that will come to give people a spring of living water, and he's revealed himself to be the light of the world. The beginning of chapter 8, right? And now as Jesus reveals himself to be all of these things, people are starting to understand it. They're starting to understand that this man, this rabbi, might be him might be the teacher that we've been waiting for, the king that's been prophesied. But he says, if you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. Why is that key? Well, if you remember back to chapter 6, Jesus fed 5,000 people. Women, children, could have been twice, could have been three times as many of that. And as Jesus feeds these people, they start to believe. Many of them chase him to the next town the following day. And they start asking him questions. And as Jesus reveals his identity, it says that people start believing, but then he challenges them. And he says, you're going to need to consume me. Why? Because I'm the bread of life. You're going to need to take me in, eat my flesh, and drink my blood. Fantastic example and analogy to use, right? But the disciples are warning him. They're saying, Jesus, this is a hard teaching. Who can believe this? And many disciples walked away from him that day and never followed Jesus. Many of them walked away. That's John 6, 66. He could have had 10,000 followers. Do you understand that? He could have. Right there. If he could have simplified it down to a form of belief in him that was simple enough to follow, that didn't require enough sacrifice, he could have had all of them. But he doesn't do that. It's more than just starting to believe. It's this desire to hold to his teachings and follow. Will you follow? And he's not going to send home people from this festival that believe but don't follow. So he challenges them that they need to hold to his teaching. Why? Because it's going to be the truth that sets people free. What is the truth? That Jesus is the light of the world. That he is the source of life. That he is the one that breaks the chains and sets us free from the reign and mastery that Satan and sin has over us. But it's going to be for people that hold to his teaching. Why? Because holding to it shows that it's transformed your heart. We're descendants of Abraham. He's going to say in a few verses, no, you're not. Look at your heart. Look at the way you live. It's going to reveal it. 
If you were truly sons of Abraham, you would hold to the way that he lived, but you're not holding to it. So to be a follower of Jesus, we must hold to it. Jesus explains to them that because sin has control over their lives and their hearts, that they're slaves to it. And their rebuttal in verse 33 is that they're Abraham's descendants. They've never been slaves of anyone. Okay, this is a spiritual argument. This isn't political. This isn't about Rome. Because they reference their spiritual forefather, Abraham. They're trying to understand why Jesus would say that spiritually, they become slaves to something other than God. Jesus' rebuttal is that he is the son of God. They are slaves. So Jesus' role in the household is a permanent role. And because he's a permanent resident of the house, he can set slaves free and he can bring slaves into the family. But the people need to understand they're outside of the family. They're not in. It's their sin that's keeping them away. If you look at the end of 38, Jesus tells the crowd of people they're doing what they heard from their father. So they're accusing the people of having a different lineage than him, belonging to a different group than him. But the Jews' whole identity was built around their belonging to Abraham. It was theirs. God had given them the promise of this covenant all those years ago to who? Abraham. And Abraham is their spiritual forefather. They were supposed to receive God's blessing because of their connection to Abraham. So to claim that he wasn't really their dad was to claim that their rightful right, attachment to the promise and the covenant wasn't true. Verse 39. We're just zooming through this. Abraham, they said, is our father. And Jesus says, if you were Abraham's children, you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you're looking for a way to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You're doing the works of your own father. We're not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. And Jesus says to them in verse 42, If God were your father, you would love me. For I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God has sent me. Do you notice? I didn't notice this at first. I caught it later. When they reference their connection back to the promise that God made, they slowly bridge the gap by starting with, we are descendants of Abraham. How, Jesus, would you question that we are not set free people? We're descendants of Abraham. And then Jesus challenges them. They say, well, we're actually sons of Abraham. We're much more tied to this promise, Jesus, than you understand. And he goes, but are you really? Well, we're sons of God, of Yahweh. Like, we're his children. There's nothing that could come in between us. What could come in between us? So they're bringing themselves closer, but Jesus is revealing that your actions don't say that at all. If God were your father, you'd love me. I've come here from God. I've not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? It's because you're unable to hear what I say. 
You belong to your father. Who's that? That's the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. There is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. He's a liar. He's the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you don't believe me. Can any of you, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God, here's what God says. The reason you don't hear, you don't belong to him. You just don't. There's almost nothing more hurtful that Jesus could say to Jewish people than that. To say that the God that you've been following for a hundred generations, he's not your dad. Your lives say the opposite. Your lives say that your father is the furthest thing from Yahweh. Your lives are so filled with lies that your father could only be one person, the one who created lies, the person who brought lies into the world, the person who only speaks in lies. Your father is the devil. Why? Your actions have proven it. Why? Because you hold to his language the way that he lives. You don't hold to the way that my father lives. Otherwise, you'd love me. Otherwise, you'd speak the language that I speak. Otherwise, you would see me and you would know who I am. But Jesus now has drawn this battle line between him and the people. He's attacked their very identity. Called into question what their faith is built upon. That they were holy people because they were connected to a God that was holy. They were set apart from the whole world. Because they were chosen by a God who was set apart. Jesus says to them, your actions speak much louder than your words. There's proof that you don't belong to God. Take a look at the way you live. Take a look at the way that you don't even hear my words and believe them. Have I sinned? Do you have a reason to doubt me? Would I lie to you? No. No. But you speak in lies. That's your native language, just like your father. How do you think the Jews respond to this claim by Jesus? Look at verse 48. The Jews answer Jesus, Aren't we right in saying you are a Samaritan? You're demon-possessed. So Samaritan is an outsider, right? Someone who's not a part of the Jews. And a demon-possessed person is someone who's being controlled by Satan himself. That's their claim. Jesus rebuts by saying, I'm not possessed by a demon. I honor my father. You dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself. There's one who seeks it. He's the judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. This takes it to a whole nother level. Not only has this rabbi, from the middle of nowhere, who has no formal training, has never walked underneath another rabbi, not only has he walked into Jerusalem, claimed that he has a relationship with the Father no one else has, 
claimed that the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders, their relationship to God is false. But now this rabbi claims that he has the ability to grant people life eternal. Here's the problem. Is he greater than every other person who's ever died? Could this rabbi, who nobody knows where he even came from, could he offer something greater to the people of Israel than their great spiritual grandfather Abraham? Abraham gave them the covenant. It was passed through him. Moses, the law, passed through him. David, the kingdom, passed through him. Jesus offers them something greater. Life eternal. But that means that Jesus is elevating himself to a higher position than all those other people that came before him. That's what Jesus makes clear before he says that, that he's not here self-seeking his own glory. His glory is being given to him. At this, they all exclaim, this is 52. Now we know that you're demon-possessed. Why? Abraham died. So did the prophets. Yet you say that whoever obeys your word, they'll never taste death? Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died. So did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Think just like we encountered earlier in John. This is the question that we all have to wrestle with. In John 8.25, the crowd asked, Who are you? And here the crowd asks, Who do you think that you are? Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim is your God, he's the one that glorifies me. Though you don't know him, I know him. If I said that I didn't, I'd be a liar just like you. But I know him, and I obey his word. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Saw it. How did Abraham see Jesus? Abraham, who lived, what, two and a half thousand years earlier? How had Abraham seen Jesus? The people respond, you're not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds, ready to murder him at this. Why? Why is this the breaking point? Why is this the moment they feel justified to take his life? Because who did he just claim to be? Claim to be? God himself. He is saying that I am Yahweh. I am the Yahweh who met with Abraham. I am Yahweh. I am the one who set you free from Egypt. I am. 
I'm the one who created this world. I am. He's claiming that identity after questioning the identity of the crowd. You think you're part of Yahweh's family. You are not. Who, who am I? What is my identity? I am Yahweh. I am. But at this, he's now spoken blasphemy. He has claimed that God, who is one, now God is two? And this rabbi thinks that he's Yahweh, that he met Abraham. So they pick up stones. You can't live and speak like this. You can't claim to be our God and yet be man. So Jesus hides. He gets out of there. They're going to kill him. Jesus knows something that they don't know. He knows that it's sin that's killing them. He knows that it's sin that has them in slavery, that they need to be set free from. But all the rest of them think they're free. You wouldn't believe this. People love freedom. It's a big deal to them. But when you think you have freedom, it doesn't make a lot of sense for Jesus to show up and claim that you haven't had it all along. If you're swimming in the water and the lifeguard throws you, you know, the big life preserver throws the ring out in the water on the rope and yells, grab on, I'll pull you in. And you look at the lifeguard and you look, you know, at the, at the ring and you look back at the lifeguard and you're thinking, what's he doing? And he's yelling, he's yelling, grab on, I'm going to pull you in, grab on. Do you take a minute to examine the state of the water? Do you walk around? Do you dip your head in? Or do you just grab on and just head for shore? You see, the lifeguard can see something you can't see. They sit in elevated positions, so they have a vantage point that you don't have down below. So if they claim there's danger, you don't question it. You know that because of their role and their responsibility and their vantage point that they can see things that you can't see, you have to trust them and get out of the water. Even though you feel safe, they can see the danger that's all around you. They can see what's wrong. And Jesus is being that person. He's claiming that you think this 2,000 year building upon the holiness, the righteousness of Abraham, this family line. You think this is your salvation. You think this is your identity, that you're free in him. But I'm telling you that it's sin that has you bound And only in understanding that I am the light of the world coming to unbind you, break those chains, give you new and living hope, you can be set free. And the people go, I don't think so. I don't see danger around us. The water looks just fine. That's the tension. That's the tension. We're fine. And Jesus is breaking that down piece by piece. You're not fine. Sin rules your heart. You're not fine. Your actions prove that you're not Abraham's descendants. You're not fine. You're not fine. As they wanted him to kill that adulterous woman, and he rode in the sand with his finger, and they all started walking away, knowing they were guilty of sin, they realized they are not all fine. They all deserve death. And yet when Jesus offers them the alternative to death, they would rather live in their darkness than encounter the light, and they walk away.
you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I was thinking about the application of this word, even just to my own life this week. What does that mean to live in that truth? If Jesus really is the one that sets me free, the one that leads me out of darkness, the one that gives me life instead of death, how do I follow him? How do I hold to his teaching? Not simply believe in it, how do I hold to it? It's easy to claim that you believe this. It's a whole other thing to live this out. Do you agree? I think so. We've created a culture, I think, in church where it's very easy to sit and listen, sing the songs and listen to the person and believe that this book is true. But when you go home, you don't have to follow this if you don't want to. We've made it easier. You don't even need to be a part of the physical family. Now a lot of people watch at home. The disadvantage to that is that you can disengage further if you choose. You don't have to hold to this. No one's going to see you. No one's going to hold you accountable. You don't have to hold to it. You can simply believe it's true and go about your life. But if you choose to hold to it, it affects everything. If you choose to love God and love other people ahead of yourself, you have to actually do it. If you claim to want to see your church grow, you have to be a part of it. We should pray more than pray more. We should be more generous than give more. We should study God's word more thoroughly than help lead something. I really think we should talk about missions more. All right, come help. I hold to this, but but do you hold to it? Do you? What have the last two years shown us? It's easy to slip away into a quiet corner. It's easy. And then yet, people have broken through that. This is where we're going to end this morning. This week, as I was practicing the sermon, kind of reading through the scripture over and over again, I was up here on the stage, and I was not imagining, I was remembering. I was remembering the different people in our church who I've seen over the past year, year and a half, that have dug deeper during this time. They hold to it. Families in the church needed help. Meals showed up. And I'm not talking one or two. I'm talking a dozen people volunteered the first day and a dozen people volunteered the second day. We needed to pray more. So a weekly prayer meeting was created within days to get started. Led by people you may not have expected to lead a prayer meeting. We need to get excited about reaching our community and reaching the world. So there's people pouring fresh energy into bringing missions and presenting it to you and drawing you into it. We're challenged with a lack of funds and people step up to give generously because they want to see this mission go forward. People have dug in. People have held to the teaching, not just believed in it. Most of you did not become Christians in the last week or two. Most of you have been followers of Jesus before 10 years, 20 years, 30 years ago. But now you're in the midst of holding to it. You know that without Jesus, you're dead. You're separated from life. But to pursue him means giving up everything. To pursue him means dying to yourself 
I can't water this down for you. It's going to cost you everything. But people in our church have chosen to hold to it. Hey, buddy. That was Cooper. Let's pray together as we consider this. How are you and I together going to build this church and hold to the teaching of Jesus? Let's pray. Father in heaven, oh, thank you, Jesus, that you have given us a way to live this life with you, to come out of darkness and live in life, and I pray that you would continue to show me how to do that. Help me, Lord Jesus, to be quiet to hear your voice. Help me, Lord, to know the moments when I'm living for myself and sin is leading me and controlling me, and it shouldn't. I should be pursuing you. Lord Jesus, I thank you for my church family. They know who you are. They don't have to ask that question anymore. They know who you are. And they have chosen to hold. They've chosen to obey. They've known the truth. The truth has transformed them and set them free. So Jesus, as we as a church have decided to follow you, give us the boldness and the energy to not turn back now. We don't even know what this next year holds for us. But give us the boldness to not turn back now. Help us to dig deeper. To not be on the sidelines, to not be spectators. To be participants. The church is us. We are the church. Lord, show us how to live in your light. We love you. We love you so much. Thank you for setting us free. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.
go in peace. Carry the light of Jesus to this world as you go. Show them the king. Show them the truth and allow the truth to set them free. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. You're dismissed. If you're one of the action team leaders in the church that's going to be working with the Miller students, if you're in charge of all those different areas, make sure you stay and we're going to visit with the Miller students and find places where they can volunteer.